We are back with another episode of the Black Box Podcast. I'm your host, John. And I'm your host, Ahmed. And today we have a really, really cool guest, um, our man, Mark Hirschberg. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about just his really cool life experiences and what he's doing now. Um, guess since this is the intro, we'll give you guys a little intro on what that is. But um Mark, Mark has, he was a former MIT student and now has been teaching um, a course at MIT for what, about 20 years, um, 20 years about the skills that you need to really be successful in the workplace that may not be taught to you through traditional schooling. Um, Mark is also an author and we'll have details about his book in the show notes. And, um, yeah, he's started multiple start like tech startups. He's a fractional CTO slash CTPO, like really, really cool guy. And just an absolutely great conversation that we had today. Um, so, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Also he, um, Oh, he's he's done technical consulting, so that's kind of in the realm of you know being a fractional CTO or whatever. But being that's in the C-suite, so that's very impressive. And he also what started out as a hobby and is now possibly turning into something else, as he mentions in the episode, uh, building an app, which also builds off his book and off the teachings that he did at MIT, but more general based for anyone, not just people in STEM. So the skills you need to just improve in the workplace, be more effective and succeed, which is what we want everyone to listen to this podcast to do. But I will shut the fuck up now (laughs) (laughs) and we can let him talk about it because he does a lot better job than me. But yeah. All right. Let's hop right in. Hey guys, just wanted to shout out Zencaster, our platform of choice for recording remotely with our guests. Uh, they're sponsoring this episode, so tune in later to hear more about some really great offers. Hey y'all, we're really excited to tell you about Black Ice, the black-owned jewelry business owned by Sean Moore, uh, our previous guest on the Black Box podcast. If you think, if you think about it, Black Ice and like Black Box, it's like it's it's almost like it's meant to be. Exactly. Um, yeah, but you know, we like to focus on investing in the show. So, you know, we kind of look at it as we're partnering up with a asset class, you know, jewelry is considered an investment. And with the, you know, stock market and crypto being pretty volatile right now, and most for the most part going down, um, jewelry, especially precious metals, you know, gold and silver, those tend to preserve their value really well. So, you know, that's also another reason why we think it's a a good opportunity. But also, you know, I've worked with Sean in the past. I got a gift for my mother actually for Mother's Day. It was a pretty, a relatively custom piece, nothing crazy, but, you know, Sean was quick. He was easy. He was responsive. The price was fair. And, you know, we just met up and transaction was easy. And my mom loved the gift. So, yeah, if this all sounds good to you, check out Black Ice's website at Black Ice NYC um, and at all socials. And, uh, there's a V instead of an A for the black. So as you guys are probably used to with little letter substitutions by us, but you could find stock goods there. And Sean also specializes in custom goods with quick turnaround times. Yeah. Uh, Sean does great custom pieces. I've seen a bunch of them on his social media, but um, yeah, he's also good for sourcing, you know, like watches, specific Rolexes, anything like that that you're looking for. He can also get you a better price and, you know, if you're going to, you know, a bigger name shop or someone that you don't really know that might try to gouge you on the price. So along with that, it's also supporting an upcoming entrepreneur. He's had a lot of success. He just celebrated his one year anniversary of the business, had a really nice party. And um, let's get back to the show. All righty, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, definitely excited to get into the conversation today. But before we do that, you want to just start by introducing yourself a little bit? Sure, happy to. And thank you for having me on the show. I have a very interesting background that led me to a dual career. When I came out of MIT back in the 1990s, I started out as a software engineer during the dot-com era. 
And I knew early on that I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. What I quickly realized is that didn't mean I was simply the best engineer. Yes, I had to have good engineering skills, but there were a whole bunch of other skills that would be important. Leadership, communicating, team building, networking, negotiating, all these skills, I had heard of them, but no one ever actually taught me how to do them. So I set out to develop those skills in myself. As I did so, I realized these skills are not just for executives. They're not just for founders. They're really for everyone from the most junior intern through mid-level people up through the top. And I began to upskill my entire team. Now, I went on in my career and I've built a number of tech startups. I've been companies from three to 300,000 people, all phases of tech, all phases of startup evolution. But about 20 some years ago, MIT had discovered the same issue that companies were saying in the people we hire, not just engineers, not just college grads, not just MIT, we want to see these skills, but we can't find them. So at MIT, we addressed this by creating the Career Success Accelerator to teach these skills to our students. And when I heard they were putting it together, I reached out. I said, I've got some material I've given to my team. I'm happy to share it with you. I thought that would be it. But instead, they asked me to help create some of the class to stay and teach. So I've been teaching in parallel to building these tech companies. I've been teaching at MIT for over 20 years, as well as at some other universities. And now I've turned all that into a book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success that No One Taught You. Perfect. Awesome. Um, awesome. Ahmed, do you, did you want to go? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess your partnership with MIT, if if that is like the, I guess the correct title for what's uh, what's going on there, um, is this something that kind of formed organically, or how how did that really come to be? It was organic, but it also comes from the very act of networking. Now, in my book, I talk very much about you need to be intentional with your plans with your career plan. But that doesn't mean it's in stone and you can't or shouldn't adjust it. I never intended to teach at MIT. I never intended to write a book, but I was building my network. And when I heard about this through my network, I reached out and I just offered. I was not trying to, hey, pay me for this, or hey, I want to get a job teaching there. I thought, let me help you out. And so often when we reach out to our network, when we help other people, it leads us down paths that we can't even predict. So that one small act of giving opened the door and led them to, why don't you help us design it? And in fact, originally they weren't planning to have people like myself there teaching. They have amazing professors. But what the director realized was that I brought a different perspective. The professors are great researchers, but they're usually not out in the field doing. And he realized we wanted to get alongside professors, people like myself. And so we quickly went out, found others like myself who were practitioners, and we co-teach along with the professors. Gotcha. Thank yeah, you. I feel- Thank you for that clarification. Um, I mean, I guess with with MIT uh, specifically, is there any, like, what 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 significant change have you seen among, like, people that did attend your your course and people who didn't um was were there any like notable things that you've noticed or uh maybe something in the data that was pointed out to you that's a great question and for years i've actually encouraged mit to do longitudinal surveys let's look at our students 10 years out compared to their peers who didn't do our program and fortunately we don't have that data but we do have data from students while they're in the class, quantitative data, as well as anecdotal. Quantitatively, we could see because we survey them before, during, and after the program. And we see they start to grasp these concepts a lot better as they go through the program. But here's the key thing. You could spend years trying to understand leadership or networking or any of these skills. It's not something we can teach you in the time of the program. The key to a program like this, and really my book and any program you would take doing this, it's not that we're going to teach you the last word, but we are going to open the door and help you understand and see how to progress. So let me share one anecdote, if I may. At the end of the program, we have a networking lunch. 
and we bring in people who say, this is not a job fair. Don't show up with your resume. You've all done that in college, but the real world doesn't work like that. In the real world, you don't go into a room and go, here's my resume. Here's my resume. Do you have a job? It's networking. Mm -hmm. It's chatting with people. And you never know where that goes. And I remember one of my students, she was very nervous about Many people are actually really nervous about networking. And as the non-students came in, and I took my students, I had a small group. I said, okay, you know, it's time to start going, go chat with people. There was one young lady who just was super nervous. So I walked her over to a friend of mine, a guy who was there, who happened to work in a field she was interested in. I introduced them. I got the conversation started, just like you would when you introduce a friend. Yep. And after I started talking for a few minutes, I, I left them. I went off and checked on other students in the program. At the end of it, as we signaled the, the bell and said, all right, everyone, time to wrap up. You've got about three minutes left. I happened to run into her. And she looked at me and said, this is so much fun. I don't want it to stop. <laughs> and if you think about before that moment, before this experience, she would have avoided networking events. She would have said, oh, my God, this is horrible. It's weird. I don't like it. And after that, she got comfortable with it. And so really the whole program, now that was a very quick change. But when they go through different modules, they come out and say, I'm starting to understand the importance of leadership or why communication is subtle but can make a big difference. And those little changes, those mental shifts can have such an incredible long-term impact on their own development and success. I do. Awesome. I feel like that, you know, because I'm thinking about experiences that, that I've had that occur also. It's like, I feel like that it's kind of, how am I trying to put it? Like originated on maybe one bad occurrence. Like before you developed these skills, you had, you know, maybe a public speaking event where it didn't go well, you were stumbling on your words. And then from then on, though, usually those kind of things that involve like meeting new people or speaking in front of people tend to induce a lot of anxiety. But, you know, personally for myself, once I got into the workplace and out of school, and I was presenting on things I actually had like a strong grasp on the content. I had a couple of good, you know, like design reviews and at my engineering job. And then from then on, I felt like speaking in front of a group of people was something that, you know, maybe I'm better than I originally thought I was. Uh, and I feel like that also plays in, in part with, with public speaking because, you know, there are those first few minutes when you're at a, an event, like a job fair or, the networking event that you hosted where things are a little bit awkward, a little tense. You're just like trying to figure out what type of people are around, what kind of conversations you can have. But once you really get into the groove of it, like you said, uh, the person who was a part of your program, then they loved it. You know, you have a couple of good conversations, you start getting the ball rolling and things are a lot easier, but that's, that was just a little side note. The main thing that I wanted to say was, um, so these skills that you're teaching, before, I guess before we had start addressing what the specific skills are, are they things that are related to like, you know, leading people or are they just more generally just a way that you can better provide value and better approach problems? Or well, is it a combination of all of them? Let's review what the 10 skills are so we all yeah. know what we're talking about. There are 10 skills divided into three sections. And this is not something I dreamt up one night. This comes from surveys done by MIT and other universities that we consistently see employers ask for. And you've heard of all these skills. You've seen them in articles and things you've read online. The 10 skills in the three sections, section one, careers, creating and executing a career plan. Chapter two is on working effectively, things like managing your manager, fitting into company culture. Chapter three is interviewing. Now here, I explicitly look a lot more from the hiring manager side. There's lots of content on how to be a candidate or how do I answer that question. But many of us have to hire our peers and layer subordinates, and we provide no training for that. That's crazy. The second section is on leadership and management. It has a chapter on leadership one on the people side of management, and one on the process side of management. Now, the importance of these chapters, they're not only for people with a certain title or a certain level of authority, because all of us, even as junior people, we have to lead and manage others, even when we don't have authority over them. 
The final section, Interpersonal Dynamics, has four chapters, and those are the skills of communication, networking, negotiating, and ethics. Awesome. Um, so I'm, so when you say chapters, um, these are the different chapters in your book. Just, just want to confirm, um, when you, when you were writing the book, was this something where it was almost as a, like, not, not like a direct replacement, but like a substitution for the class or the course that you were teaching, or is this something that is more complimentary? Great question. We've been teaching this for 20 years. We've learned what works in teaching it, what doesn't. Now, the way we teach at MIT, we do orient it a little more towards STEM. And the examples we use come from STEM because our students can relate to it. These skills, of course, are universal. So when I put them in the book, they are not STEM oriented. And the examples I pull in from yeah, there's a few engineering examples, but also sales, accounting, marketing, all these other fields. And I talk about them generally. And also at MIT, we're oriented towards students. Here, the book is written for people of all experience levels. So whether you are two or 52, if you're saying, boy, I want to be better at networking, I want to be a better leader, this book will help give you, here are the techniques, here's how you get there, using what we learned works from decades of teaching at MIT. Got it. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Um, I was going to say, uh, you might you might have already just mentioned it, but just so it's clear to the audience, what is the goal after you read the book? Very good question. After you read the book, you're going to be better at these skills. Now, let me give some concrete examples, but I'm also going to note this is slightly different than other books. You don't have to read it page one to page 200, whatever it goes to. You can read it in any order. I recommend the introduction. It's a couple pages. But then if you say, hey, networking is what I want to get better at, go right to chapter eight. Skip one through seven. Focus on that. And you just read that chapter. Each chapter involves a mental shift and then concrete actionable things you can do to get better. There's a summary and next steps at the end of each chapter. Say, so I'm just going to read that chapter. It's going to take you 30, 40 minutes. Done. Maybe a few weeks later, you say, okay, now I want to work on managing my manager and being more effective in my job. Okay, that's chapter two. So you can jump around in any order. It's a toolkit. Pick up the tool you need, use it, put it back, grab another tool when you need it. Now, I mentioned... Okay, what's the, what's the outcome? How does this feel? How does this work? Yeah. Let me give you a basic example. Let's take negotiating. Imagine you are 26 years old and you have a job offer for $60,000. But instead of just taking it, you've learned to negotiate. You've read the chapter in my book or you took a class online, read some other book on it, however you get it. And my book is not the only way to do it, but you've gotten a little better at negotiating. Not the world's greatest negotiator, but a little better. So you negotiate for $61,000. That's just $1,000 more. We can all imagine doing that. If you do nothing else in your career, those 10 minutes of negotiating or a couple emails back and forth, you just earned $1,000 more. For the next 40 years that you sit in that job until you retire, in 10 minutes, after reading one chapter, you just earned $40,000. But of course, you're not going to stay in that job for 40 years. Yeah. You're going to have other jobs, raises, promotions, and you're going to get more than $1,000. If you get just a little bit better at negotiating, you're going to get this compounding effect that can add tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime income. And of course, you don't just negotiate your salary, you negotiate with coworkers, with suppliers and partners, and you get better solutions than those. Now, I use negotiating as an example because we can do the math. We can do $1,000 times 40. But this is true for all of these skills. If you get a little bit better at communicating, at leading, at any of these skills, it's not that someone will say, here's $1,000 more but you will stand out. You will be put on the bearer project. You will get promoted faster. You will get the job and it will have that same type of compounding interest to your success. 
Of course. Um, I guess what one question just to follow up on on the topic of negotiation um, before I guess we talk a little bit more about um, your experience with tech startups, just because I am really interested about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, me too. So when I when I graduated uh, college, I I had interned for a company um, in between my junior and senior year, and then received a full time offer. Um, during the school year. And I knew about the importance of negotiating. And when I tried to negotiate, the response I got was, we do not negotiate these offers. And um, I, I mean, I've t- I've, I took a negotiating class at some point, and I learned about BATNAs or the best alternative, your best, Maybe I don't remember the entire acronym, That's but alternative to negotiated agreement. What happens if you don't do the deal? What's your backup plan? Exactly. Thank you. Um, and at, at that at that moment, I I felt that maybe I didn't have any leverage um, just because I had no prior work experience. And I I mean I took the I took the offer. I I've since left that company and I was able to successfully negotiate my more recent uh job offer. But when if if someone is placed in a situation like that as many of our listeners maybe uh have been in that position or may find themselves in that position at some point in the future, what would be your advice? How do you respond to like a very um to someone who's not willing to negotiate with you? Great question. And I go through in the negotiation chapter how to actually do compensation negotiations and some examples. Now, let's look at your situation and some comparable ones. When students graduate and they go to some big company, a company like Google or Goldman Sachs, they hire literally scores of people right out of school. And Goldman Sachs knows there is a line down the block of people who would die to get that job. And yes, you're smart and you have good grades and you qualify in a lot of ways, but so do the next 200 people. And so they know their BATNA is, <laughs> I've got plenty of others to choose from. So their BATNA is pretty good. Their alternative, don't hire you, I'll hire the next guy. Your BATNA may not be as strong. So you need to, in that situation, Find some way to say, this is why I am different from all these folks. And admittedly, that can be hard when you're a college senior because, honestly, you're not that different. That's the reality. I have a lot of of experience, yeah. Yeah. Now, if, on the other hand, you have 15 years of experience and you are in Juneau, Alaska, and you are a botany expert, and they need a botany expert in Juneau, Alaska, what's their BATNA? Not much. There can't be that many botany experts <laughs> looking for a job in Juneau, Alaska. So you've got a lot more leverage there. And that will change over time. But now we, we looked at, in your case, we talked about a bigger company, smaller companies, startups might say, well, yeah, I know there are other college students out there and I guess I could find them, but they're not lining up the way they are for those big names. And that means there's some cost to me to actually going out and finding them and interviewing them. I've had students, and usually the startup companies are a lot more flexible. They don't have formal policies about, well, this is all we can pay and it's set by corporate and I can't change it. I've had students, I've helped them negotiate their internships. And even cases where they can't get more money, they've gotten things like more stock options. They've gotten flexible start dates, work from home, which it's a lot more common now post-pandemic, but back then that was something or help with housing or a car. So there's lots of things you can do. It's a little harder when it's a big company that has a lot of alternatives for themselves. I was going to say that yeah. might make sense. Just because with Ahmed's, you negotiated for a bigger company. Well, yeah, I mean, so- you, you just went to a bigger company too and were able to successfully negotiate. But again, that might be because you have some experience now and some leverage. But yeah, I recently went to a startup well, not recently anymore, I guess, like eight months ago. But I felt like that situation was a little more, I guess you could say looser, for lack of a better term, in, in terms of where I could go with the negotiations and what they were willing to do 
for me and how they were willing to work with me because there wasn't like you said that corporate standard of all right we only pay this position a max of this salary and this uh bonus per year or something so even if you think about that a big company again like a goldman sachs says you know what if we let each manager negotiate independently what if suddenly more people of this gender, this race, this whatever are slightly higher? Ooh, lawsuit, terrible. So we're going to set this standard for right out of school. Yeah. Whereas at small startup, there's, there's no HR department and they're not worried about a lawsuit because they're hiring one person and you're not going to have all these different groups of people. So yeah. you do the best you can. So that's a function of just the nature of where the company is and what processes they need for the stage they're at. And I guess these are all things that you need to take into account before you just go, like you can't approach every situation exactly the same. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I guess um, that was a bit selfish. I just wanted to get your opinion on that past situation, just because I feel like um, that was, a, I guess I received that offer almost three years ago now, but I've, I feel like I'm definitely a much, I wouldn't say I'm like wiser, but I'm more knowledgeable about negotiating and just like con like conversations than I was back then. Um, but I guess now transitioning to um, the tech startups that you've worked with, I just, I'm going to get like a very, I guess, cliche answer or cliche question that you've probably been asked a ton of times out of the way. Um, what is like the most notable startup you've worked with or the one that you're the most proud of? That's a good question. The I do a lot of enterprise software, which means you've probably never heard of most of what I've done. The biggest name, and it's not one, I don't really talk about this or promote it much, I consulted to back then NBC. They were trying to do this new internal venture and they were having trouble. So I was brought in as a consultant to help them out. That one ultimately spun out into a separate company. The company has now been branded Hulu. So that's probably the best known company I was part of. Other there, right. I was just a consultant. The ones that I am most proud of, now, that's a good question. I'm proud of different ones for different reasons. Flashpoint, I'm proud of because the work that is done by that company, we would track down terrorists and cyber criminals on the dark web. And so that has some nice positive externalities for the world. So that was a nice one to work at. At Sherman's Travel, I wasn't necessarily proud of the company overall or some of the behaviors of some people there. But uh, what we did as engineers, we rebuilt an entire platform taking this horrible legacy code that was just buggy spaghetti code we couldn't work with and doing a replacement. And really, I got the company to go from needing a team of 16 engineers to just a team of two engineers to support it. Of course, I thought that meant, good, now we can go focus on some new things. I had all these proposals. Instead, the company thought, well, now we can cut 14 engineers. So didn't quite work out the way I hoped. And then Averon, I think we did some really interesting work in cybersecurity. Our patent portfolio is really innovative. And I think a lot of good things will still come out of that company. Awesome. I got a couple questions from that. Uh, I Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but with Zencaster, the process becomes much easier. Zencaster is an all-in-one web-based solution that makes the process pretty painless and simple. Um, Zencaster allows to bring you guys, our listeners, the best quality by providing crystal clear audio and gorgeous HD video when we record with our guests. Uh, Zencaster is also easy to use for new users and guests. So, you know, when we have people on the podcast who haven't used a platform before, we pretty much just tell them to show up with a computer, mic, and uh, headphones, and you're pretty much good to go. Um, Zencaster is pretty plug and play. Uh, but from local recording to automated post-production tools, you don't even have to leave the browser to finish off your episode. Use the code zen.ai slash blackbox and enter our promo code blackbox. You'll get 30% off the first three months of Zencaster Pro. 
it's time to share your story. These are more just about the stuff you were doing at those startups, but um, what's like the methods or like the approach when you're trying to track people down on the dark web? Is it like, like ethical hacking related skills or I guess? I unfortunately can't get into too oh, you many can't. Gotcha. about that, but there are a number of techniques, technical and social that we employ. Gotcha. We can leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The cool stuff you can't always talk about. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Usually the cooler it is, uh, the more uh, confidential it is as well. But um, I guess were these all like one one at a time things like it was your main full time job at that time. And then you eventually reached a point where you could leave it as it was and then go on to your next venture. Or were you ever balancing more than one? Because, you know, there's people that you see on social media that they're, you know, an executive at this company. And then they're also uh, an advisor at this company and on the board of this company. So I guess maybe just give your opinion on that. Well, being an advisor or being on the board aren't inherently full-time jobs. They do take some time, but that's usually pretty easy to balance. What we're seeing more these days is fractional work. And at times I have been full-time committed. So some of these companies, I'm a full-time employee and I'm there. And maybe I'm on the advisory board of some other startup or nonprofit. Sure, but that's not, I wouldn't think of that as a job. That's more almost hobby level. Gotcha. Then sometimes I'm a consultant. As a consultant, I've done it full-time. I've done it part-time. So at the moment, as we're recording this, I actually have a couple different jobs. I have a startup I'm working on, which I can't talk about yet. I have my Brain Bump app, which went from, I thought it would just be a hobby to, it seems to be turning into a startup. I have two clients where I am a fractional CTO or CTPO. So chief technology officer, chief product officer. And then I do, I have my book and I do speaking related to the book, although that's relatively tiny compared to the others. And what we're seeing in a lot of startups, especially these days, fractional work. So what do I mean by that? For years, we've had fractional CFOs, chief financial officers. Imagine, for example, you are a 10-person company. So you might have a few engineers, some salespeople, a marketing person, Maybe you have an accountant, maybe you have a bookkeeper, which is like a junior type of accountant, or even a part-time bookkeeper. You don't have a lot of receipts. You don't have someone full-time. You do payroll twice a month. It's pretty straightforward. So you have a part-time bookkeeper, or let's say full-time. But the bookkeeper can't do the high-level strategy, can't do, let's do budgeting and forecasting that we need to raise money. So what you do is you bring in a fractional CFO, chief financial officer, And this is a person who comes in maybe about 10 hours a month, double checks the work of the bookkeeper, does kind of the big things, the important things, and then leaves the rest to the bookkeeper. So, okay, follow up with this, do these things. We're seeing it's now becoming more common for fractional CMOs, chief marketing officers. This is not a person who's tweeting every day. You can get someone more junior to do it, but they're saying, have we thought about our strategy and how we're going to position ourselves and why you do some research and then we'll review. And well, in my experience, here's how we should think about it. We're seeing fractional CTOs or chief product officers. And in fact, this is a common mistake I see. A lot of companies, they say, we're a tech company. First, they're not, but they think they are. And even if they are, they want to hire a CTO. Start by hiring an engineer because if you hire someone my level, I'm very expensive. And I'm not so fast at writing code these days. It's not what I yeah, do. Yeah. Not where I spend my time. I'm slow at writing code. So if you hire me, you're spending a lot of money for inefficiency. But you could hire a bunch of more junior coders. They're going to turn out code much faster than I am. But they don't have the experience of how do we architect this? And how do we think about this technical decision? What's the trade-off? And how will this come back to bite us? And is that okay? You don't need you me full time for that. Right couple hours a week and I can give that guidance and you get the best of what someone like me brings to the table at a high cost, but for a minimum amount of time. Okay. Um, and then I guess one quick follow-up that stems off of that idea. Is it like, 
you know, you're, you're coming in and you're just providing like as much value as possible in the shortest amount of time or as much time as you need to do that. And then you're kind of just doing that in multiple places. Sometimes it's long-term extended and they say, look, we've got five engineers, 10 engineers. We don't need a full-time CTO, but we need a little supervision. It's just X hours a week for an indefinite period. Sometimes they say, hey, we're going to eventually grow. We'll bring someone on full-time, but not yet. So for the next six months, hold the fort. And by the way, when we go to hire someone, can you lead that and help interview them and help us think about who the right person is? And sure, I'll do that. I basically hire my replacement. And so it really varies by company. Sometimes they need me as a stand-in because their person quit. Or maybe in a few companies, they have a CTO or a CPO. Say, there's so much to do. And this happens at startups all the time. There's so much to do. And I don't have the bandwidth to supervise. We need a senior person. We need like one and a half of me. Can you be that extra half for the next few months until we grow a little more and I'll hire a VP? Gotcha. I, I actually have two questions. Um, just uh, stemming off of what you just said. Uh, I guess the first one, what do you look for when you're looking to find a replacement, like a uh, C-suite level um, contributor? Good question. I talk about this in the book because it's really about how you think of hiring at any level. But let's think of, I'm going to give you an example at the, the CTO level or C-level but this applies at all levels. So when you think CTO, a CTO of a 10-person team, well, she might even be doing a little coding herself. Certainly, she'll be doing code reviews. She'll be involved with what's going on on a day-to-day basis, as well as the strategy, the planning, very in the weeds. A CTO of a company that has a 1,000 engineers, she's not looking at code. Her subordinate subordinates are probably not looking at the code, let alone writing it, because it's a totally different project. And that's a different skill set. I've been at companies where some of them would say, well, you're the CTO. Why would you ever need to leave the office? Your focus should just be with the engineers here. I don't work for those companies anymore, but I will turn them down. Others have said, hey, We need you to go at these conferences, to hear what's happening, to speak at these conferences, to help us with our sales, because this is a very technical sale and we need a technical person and that we need that high level, someone with gravitas, someone who can speak in business terms, but technical terms, someone to help us formulate partnerships. So it's the same title, but how much time I'm spending doing, okay, let's see how is the code coming along and do you have a problem? Let's talk about what we need to do to solve it versus I have to think about the strategy, versus I have to be part of sales, that ratio will be different from one job to another. The ratio could even be different in the same job from one year to the next. Because when I'm running a team of 10 engineers, I'm a lot more in the code. As I grow that team to 60 engineers, I'm not looking at code anymore. I've got now intermediaries to do that. And so it's thinking about what are the skills needed today and in the future, and who's the right person for it. And I I use the example at the C-level, but this applies to a senior person, to a lead, to a director level, a VP level. It's the same type of thinking, no matter what the role is. Gotcha. That's that's very interesting, actually. Um, I I feel like it's also like along the same lines of... uh, you don't really know, like if you're applying to a job and if you really like the job description, you don't really know what you're going to be doing until you're like you're there on your first day and you're actually doing it. Um, so like just just for some some reference, John and I both started jobs within the past year. And speaking for myself, I could say just reading the job description I was excited for the job, um, but since starting, I would say I was very pleasantly surprised that my actual day-to-day job is different from what I thought it was going to be, and in fact, it ended up being something that I'm enjoying a lot more. Uh, so the fact that 
your like a job could be dynamic, um, like a software engineer just within the same company on different teams could be doing completely different things. May They may have different uh, workloads or different uh, priorities or anything like that. Um, Let's but, actually dig into that. And we'll talk about how you can find this ahead of time. But can you be specific? What was the description? What were the things you thought you would be doing? What did you wind up doing? And and how did that come about? Of course. Uh so the the job that I applied to, I'm kind of in a support oriented role, um, working for the AdSense group at Google. And um, originally, the job description was kind of more along the lines of one to one partner support, uh, which seemed interesting to me. I like the idea of doing an externally facing job, but um, I guess like with one-to-one like tickets or cases, it's almost like a customer service role. That's what I thought I was getting into. Um, And I was excited, but once I got here, I found out that the team was had like was in the process of transitioning over that type of workload to a vendor group and now i'm the uh configuration and automation lead for for the adsense help center when something like i have i have minimal to no background knowledge of and i'm in the process of learning everything now but it's n- not it's nothing that I thought that I was going to be doing, but I'm very happy with what it ended up being because I feel like I will probably learn more through this, through the, like through what I'm going to be doing than what I thought I was going to be doing. And did they give you any indication that when you were interviewing that the job might change in this way? You know, I, I have no complaints about any, like the, the process I went through or my team, but I guess one thing I, they did not indicate that at any point. I think it's ironic. Yeah. Or go ahead. No, I just wanted to throw this in quick, uh, it's a quick comment, but I think it's ironic just because, I mean, you explained your situation and, and that's not going to be the case every time you go onto a team, but you're at a huge company, Google, where you think they have the role definitions down much more precisely than they would maybe at a startup, which is fast moving, adapting all the time. They're where they're trying to fit their product into the market might be changing at the same time too. So you're kind of, you know, you wear many hats and at my job, which is also a startup, what they told me I'd be doing is pretty much exactly what I'm doing now. So I just think I wanted to say that, but I'll let you go more. And so you never know how this stuff can change or evolve. Now, it happened to evolve in a good way for you, but it also could have gone the other way. So Mm -hmm. there are two things you can do. It doesn't guarantee you're going to avoid problems, but two things that can help you figure this out. The first is when you look at a job description, it's usually not that helpful. From the title, you can guess what you're doing. If the job title is social media manager, you can guess what you're doing. I don't need to know you're going to run social media campaigns. You will make creatives. You will determine the best time to post. I knew all that from the title. Software engineer, you're writing code. And they put things like attend scrum meetings and write documentation. Yeah, yeah, I got that. But what you don't know, it goes back to this ratio. We talked about me as a CTO. I know I supervise the engineers, but how much time do I spend doing one thing or another? So it's helpful to ask, say, in a typical week, break down where I will spend my time. How much time is typically spent coding versus responding to emails versus being in meetings? How much is it usually clearing bugs versus writing new code? You can ask these questions and ask, break down and what they always say is, oh, well, you know, I, I can't give you an exact number. And say, yes, I'm not looking for an exact number, but give me a sense. Is it close to six hours a day of writing code or two hours a day because we're in meetings for four hours a day? I just want to get a general sense. And that will tell you, wow, there's four hours of meetings a day. Maybe this job is not right for me. 
So you're going to get a sense of the thing. And then you can ask, say, in six months, in 12, 18 months, whatever the ratio is, for a startup, it's probably going to be closer to asking six to 12 months because they don't have further visibility. For a bigger company, you might ask 12 to 24 months out, how do you see this job evolving? What's happening to this team, this product, this group? How might the job be the same or different in the future? Now, again, they might not know. And of course, you never know when a pandemic is going to hit, when your division gets shut down. But if they do know, hopefully they can give you some insights and that can help you plan to know if this is going to be a fit, not just for today, but in the future as well. That's some really great advice. Um, I, you know, I use a lot of like surprisingly. So like I did a lot of my interview preparation through YouTube. Um, I'm a huge YouTube like fin. I, I don't know if fanatic is the right word, but I'm a huge fan of YouTube <laughs> and YouTube. I probably like dozens of hours just spent watching video, watching videos from different creators about the interview process specifically for, um, for the company and just general tips. And then towards the end of my interview prep, I actually was referring to TikTok and like Instagram reels for like great questions to ask at the end of an interview and all of these other like useful information that could be condensed into like a 60 second or less video. And it was just some, something that to me was very amazing how these technology products that are probably originally created for fun or for pleasure, whatever it is, could be used for such a beneficial in such a beneficial way. Um, so that's why I love YouTube. I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I love TikTok and Instagram as much, but they're okay. Um. And I'm realizing now I had said I was going to ask you two questions and I've asked you one since then. Uh, so I guess I I'll hit you, you with the second one. <laughs> um, when you when you said you like there are times where you may contribute part of your time, but you won't work full time for a company. Is there like a is there like a separate platform or. Um, centralized place where like where companies can find these like fractional uh, workers or is this also done through like the same traditional like LinkedIn and Indeed and all of that? Really good question. Traditionally, no. And so they've gone through LinkedIn or Indeed and it's not great and they don't always post it. It's usually been word of mouth that lands these jobs. But we're just starting to see newer job boards in the last roughly two, three years, newer types of job boards that are explicitly about fractional or part-time roles at all sorts of levels up through the executive level. And I think we'll see growth in that area because more and more people are doing part-time with different companies, exploring different things. A lot of people say, well, I want to do my own business but, oh, my own business isn't getting me money yet, so I've got to do a little work on the side while I build this. So we're going to see more of those in the future. I feel like uh, it's also one of those things. It makes sense why it's word of mouth because it's almost like there's a small like area of work that they need someone who's has a lot of experience to come in and like lead from a high level or you know could be medium to lower level as well. But that's almost going to be like, Hey, I worked with this guy at this company 10 years ago and he was really good at doing this one thing that we need done now. Let me reach out and see if they're interested. And I feel like maybe that that's kind of how things go. Right. And certainly for the more senior roles, yeah, it's not just, Hey, does a resume line up? It's a lot of cultural fit. It's that personality. Is there that skills alignment? Cause even when we talk about a leader, there are different types of leaders. Think about the people you respect as a leader, and they might be very different in their styles, and not everyone works in every circumstance. So it's that type of alignment that's a lot more subtle. I feel like, too, um, like as we're gaining experience in the professional world, experiencing multiple positions, multiple teams, different managers, you start to figure out that everyone has a different approach 
it, it's something that you understand, but in practice, it's entirely different. You know, like when you have your first job and you only know what this one manager does, you're kind of in a bubble. But then when you get to another team and you have a manager who does almost the complete opposite, it gives you that bit of spectrum like, hey, it's more just about understanding my environment at the time. Who am I working with and how can I best compliment them? It's not really about anything else. And this is an example. I mentioned earlier how learning management skills, even when you're an individual contributor, is helpful because it's not about, well, you work for me and so I tell you what to do. It's all these skills about, we might work together. Three of us are thrown on a project and I have to manage you or like, hey, why don't you do this and you do that? And you say, no, Mark, why don't you do this? And we're managing each other. But also when you have these skills, you understand your manager much better and know how to relate and engage. And in fact, I mentioned the interviewing chapter. I talk a little about being a candidate. I talk a lot more about from the other side. And there's actually two benefits to this. The first, as I mentioned, many of us have to hire our peers and get no training for it. But also, once you understand it from the other side, you are so much more effective as a candidate. You say, oh, I understand. Why are they asking that question? What are they really looking for? Okay, I know how to answer that. Not because I was told this question, this answer. You get that almost metacognition to what they're trying to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you go. For um, it. I was, I just wanted to say, I could definitely agree with that. Um, when I, when, when we were in college, I had an on-campus job and I was, I was a lead for, for the organization. So I was conducting some of the interviews and just by conducting those interviews, I realized what kind of like behavior could really like make you like a candidate or dislike a candidate almost immediately. Um, and it was it was crazy because there were times where within the first 30 seconds of the interview, I already knew what my my opinion on the candidate was just by the way they carried themselves, the way they introduced themselves, the way they spoke. Um, so, yeah, I could definitely attest to the to the value of um, maybe maybe not being the interviewer, but just understanding the way that an interviewer may think about different things. That's, that's fine. Learn to think like one. If you can, even if you're not interviewing someone, you're not part of the team, ask your manager, ask your teammates, can I just sit in on the interview? Can I just listen in? And especially because you're not there evaluating, you can kind of sit back and chill and really take in that big picture and start to notice what is good or bad about how the candidate's answering the question? Not just the answer itself, but how that answer is being conveyed, how that candidate is conveying herself. And you're going to learn so much from that. That's, yeah, no, it, it, that was a good way to say it. Um, it was funny. I was going to say something very similar to what Ahmed did. Uh, at my last position, I was a lead uh, for a small team of a few engineers. and. I was actually also given the responsibility of helping, you know, hire other positions on that team and, you know, a, a parallel team that was doing similar work. Being on the other side of it, you also realize how much just someone's own opinion, like regardless of the rest of the company, the one person or two people who interview them, their personal opinion about them could be a make or break of them actually getting the position when in reality you know, they, they might be a good fit for the position and the person just didn't get a good feel for them the first interview. And that's kind of it. So it's unfortunate that it does come down to those like technicalities. But um, I mean, that, it's also just like the luck of the draw in a way, because if you have a really good interview and you make a good impression, then you can get a job that maybe you're not technically fully qualified for. But it's unfortunate that most interview processes are that bad, that that personal preference we start out and you talk about your dog and uh, I like cats over dogs. I already have that negative impression of you. And that's bad. Instead, when you learn how to interview properly, and again, very few companies actually teach you how to do this. Yeah. But when you learn to do it, you learn to say, 
what am I looking for? What are the evaluation criteria that I want? Is it your technical ability? I don't just mean software. Technical could be your marketing or accounting ability. What are the attributes that I want to see in you? Where are the qualities? What's the experience I want to see? And when I'm much more rigorous in defining what I'm looking for and then measuring that, okay, you talked about dogs for the first 30 seconds as we were warming up, but that has no relevancy. So doesn't go into that evaluation rubric. And when we're more rigorous in our process, we can remove some of those biases. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Um, it was me and another engineer who were taking on most of the main portion of the interviews, but we did have, you know, multiple other team members get a chance to speak to the candidates. But one of the things I feel like that we did do with lack of a lot of supervision was sit down together and ask those exact questions. Like, what are we looking for from this person? You know, is this an entry level role? Do we want them to just have the basic level skills plus some good interpersonal skills so they could be a good teammate? Or was it a senior level role where we need them to be able to come on right away and have an impact in these certain areas? So uh, one thing too is uh, you also realize in review because after you know we'd have the candidates come, they'd meet with the entire team, they'd do the main interview with me and this other engineer. Um, everyone got, would kind of go into a quick huddle and talk about what they thought and the differing like results of what people thought when we were pretty much getting the same type of interview. You know, maybe some different questions, but you're getting the same person. I thought that was you know, a good psychological study or like conclusion that I came to that. Yeah. And that's a real useful technique. I always have us huddle after a candidate and it's important to use that to help level set because if three people say he was great at communication and one person said he was a terrible communicator, you go, hold on a second. Why? Yeah. What's going on? And is it that maybe that one guy caught something, the other three didn't. Okay, hey, good catch. That's why we have multiple people interview. Or maybe you were evaluating for different things. Communication is a big topic. You could be a good communicator as in, I can stand on a stage and give a PowerPoint presentation, but terrible at writing really concise emails. And that's what we need. We don't need someone on the stage. So understanding when we say communicator, leader, teammate, what does that mean? And getting us all on the same page about that. Good way awesome. to put it. Ahmed, I don't know if you had another question, but there was one more thing I wanted to ask before we wrap. Go for um, it. You know, you talked about the multiple, uh, you know, avenues that you, you have going on right now, you know, between the book and uh, being on, being involved in startups, advising startups, being a fractional CTO um, also the app, did they, you know, and you kind of mentioned some of them started as hobbies. The main point that I'm trying to say is it seems like you were able to create multiple streams of income in a way Were they, did they all start as something that it was just your passions leading you? And then you were like, Hey, let, let's take this to the next level. We can turn it into something that, you know, I can provide a product to other people as well as, you know, create an income source or, did most of them have the intention of, hey, I want to make this into something that's going to be a product? Really good question. It's a much longer answer, but the short version yeah. is early in my career, it was, okay, here's a job. I think I'd like this job and it pays me money. Great. And I do some consulting and while well, I think they'll pay me money, okay, I'll do that. As I've gotten older, I'm fortunately at a place where I don't need to say, oh, I, I need money tomorrow. What's going to give me the most money? I can start to pick and choose. And even if I was just taking a full-time job, there are plenty of jobs I turned down and I have where I said, uh, that just doesn't feel right. The pay is great, but not for me. Gotcha. Now, I like doing tech startups and I have one that I'm doing, but I knew that was not going to generate a lot of income for me early on. We've raised seed money, but I'm not taking a salary because there's better use for that seed money. So I need other revenue. And that's the consulting. The book I did for a different reason than most people do it. Most people who write a book like mine will say, oh, and I'm going to now that I've written this book and I'm an expert, hire me as your career coach, as your interview coach, as an HR consultant. I don't do any of that. 
In fact, it's interesting because I have very different brands. I have Mark Hirschberg, the CTPO who builds tech startups, and Mark Hirschberg, who is an expert on career skills. Mm-hmm. And that Venn diagram, those circles do not overlap at Not a whole all. lot of crossover. Two yeah. different brands. So that was more for fun. I did the book for fun. Now, it turns out when you write a book like this, people want to bring you in to speak at conferences, to speak at their companies, to do workshops. And I'll do some of that. It's not my full-time job, but I do enjoy teaching and they'll pay you for that. So, okay, that worked out nicely. The app was just something that I thought would help people. When you read a book, the problem is you say, okay, great material. And then you forget two weeks after you've read it. That's not helpful. So I created a companion app to help people retain what they read. I just gave it away for free, but then other authors started to say, hey, how do we get an app like this? And when you hear people say, I want that, that's a it's sign open. they're at the market. <laughs> yeah. So we've, we've started to create an app now that can help other authors, podcasters, bloggers, speakers take their content, share it with their audiences so the audiences better retain what they hear and read. Gotcha. Okay. I was also going to say that if you didn't want to take your project to that next level, if people were asking you about it, you could also be like, hey, I'll console for you. I just did the same thing. But Very true. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's another way. You hear an opportunity and there's different ways to meet that need. Gotcha. Ahmed, did you have anything else? I don't want to um, ask anything else because... I mean, I guess I guess I, there, there is one thing I wanted to ask. Um Mark, uh, if there was if there was one thing that you would um, hope that our listeners would get out of this episode, what would it be? It's the idea that these skills are important to your success. Yes, be good at what you do, whether that's marketing, sales, engineering, whatever. But recognize that these other skills really have a huge impact on your success. Don't be intimidated and say, I'm not a natural networker. I'm not a natural leader. Because while some people are natural at it, many of us are not. But these, these are learnable skills. There are natural musicians. And then there are people who practice a lot and get good at. And what we saw with negotiating is getting just a little bit better has this massive return throughout your career. So all of these skills, they are learnable. And putting in just a little effort, getting a little bit better is going to have a huge return on your success. So start down that path today. I mean, I guess ever you ever you've heard that. Um, thank <laughs> you so much, Mark, for for all all of like your valuable insights and just for a fun conversation for the two of us. Um, yeah, Mark, thank you. And if uh, people want to get more of these resources, you can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can see where to buy the book, but you can also follow other articles I put out. Follow me on social media. You can download that free companion app for the book. So that will help you retain it if you've read the book. Even if you haven't bought the book, you can still download it for free and get some of the key takeaways. There's also a resources page with a number of completely free downloads. I give these all away. I don't even gate them by asking for your email. One of them, for example, are questions you should ask during the interview process as a candidate. Questions about your potential manager's management style, company culture. And these are questions, we tell you what the questions are and what's the right way to ask them so you can find the right fit for you. That and a whole bunch of other things completely free on the resources page and all of this at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Awesome. We were just about to ask you to to plug all your stuff. But I, one thing that I do appreciate too is, you know, I feel like you're a product of, you know, letting your passions just lead you to, well, I'm blanking on the rest of it, but just letting your passions kind of lead you to your value and where, where you can have an impact on people because, you know, it's clear that your goal is not to just sell people stuff, like sell people empty promises. You're, you're here, you want to share this information with everyone, you know, you, you're giving it out in every way possible, articles, books, apps. So, you know, that's something that I appreciate because I feel like the point of the generation above us after they've been able to provide their impact and you still are, but 
you know, wrap their careers up. Their purpose after that is to give it off to the next generation because without the knowledge we got from you, then what's the point? We're just going to repeat the same mistakes. Absolutely. All of us in the evolution of our species and society, it's all about taking one step forward and helping propel everyone behind us. Very well said. Thank you again, too. I, I really appreciate it. Ahmed, you want to wrap us up? Let's do it. Um, all right, everyone, you know where to find us at Black Box Podcast, No A in the Black. Mark, thanks again. Um, I know we've said thank you so many times, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I love the I love. I love the message that, message that you're conveying and the way that you've conveyed it. Um, so uh, I guess that wraps another episode of the Black Box Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. See ya.